Part 12, Chapters 1 and 2 of Section 2 of Democracy in America, Volume 2, by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is done by Ralph Volpe. Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville Volume 2 Section 2 Influence of Democracy on Feelings of Americans Chapter 1 Why Democratic Nations Show a More Ardent and Enduring Love of Equality Than of Liberty The first and most intense passion which is engendered by the equality of conditions is, I hardly need say, the love of that same equality. My readers will therefore not be surprised that I speak of it before all others. Everybody has remarked that in our time, and especially in France, this passion for equality is every day gaining ground in the human heart. It has been said a hundred times that our contemporaries are far more ardently and tenaciously attached to equity than to freedom, but as I do not find that the causes of the fact have been sufficiently analyzed, I shall endeavor to point them out. It is possible to imagine an extreme point at which freedom and equity would meet and be confounded together. Let us suppose that all the members of the community were to take part in government, and each of them has an equal right to take part in it. As none is different from his fellows, none can exercise a tyrannical power. Men will be perfectly free because they will all be entirely equal, and they will all be perfectly equal because they will be entirely free. To this ideal state democratic nations tend. Such is the completest form that equity can assume upon earth, but there are a thousand others which, without being equally perfect, are not less cherished by those nations. The principle of equality may be established in civil society, without prevailing in the political world. Equal rights may exist of indulging in the same pleasures, of entering the same professions, of frequenting the same places, in a word, of living in the same manner and seeking wealth by the same means, although all men do not take an equal share in government. A kind of equality may even be established in the political world, though there should be no political freedom there. A man may be the equal of all his countrymen save one, who is the master of all without distinction and who selects equally from among them all the agents of his power. Several other combinations might be easily imagined, by which very great equality would be united to institutions more or less free, or even to institutions wholly without freedom. Although men cannot become absolutely equal unless they be entirely free, and consequently equality pushed to its furthest extent, 
may be confounded with freedom, yet there is good reason for distinguishing the one from the other. The taste which men have for liberty, and that which they have for equality, are, in fact, two different things, and I am not afraid to add that, amongst democratic nations, they are two unequal things. Upon close inspection, it will be seen that there is in every age some particular and preponderating fact with which all others are connected. This fact almost always gives birth to some pregnant idea, or some ruling passion, which attracts to itself and bears away in its course all the feelings and opinions of the time. It is like a great stream towards which each of the surrounding rivulets seems to flow. Freedom has appeared in the world at different times and under various forms. It has not been exclusively bound to any social condition, and it is not confined to democracies. Freedom cannot, therefore, form the distinguishing characteristic of democratic ages. The particular and preponderating fact which marks those ages as its own is the equality of conditions. The ruling passions of men in those periods is love of this equality. Ask not what singular charm the men of democratic ages find in being equal, or what special reasons they may have for clinging so tenaciously to equality rather than to the other advantages which society holds out to them. Equality is the distinguishing characteristic of the age they live in, that, of itself, is enough to explain that they prefer it to all the rest. But independently of this reason, there are several others, which will at all times habitually lead men to prefer equality to freedom. If a people could ever succeed in destroying, or even in diminishing, the equality which prevails in its own body. This could only be accomplished by long and laborious efforts. Its social condition must be modified, its laws abolished, its opinions superseded, its habits changed, its manners corrupted. But political liberty is more easily lost. To neglect to hold it fast is to allow it to escape. Men therefore not only cling to equality because it is dear to them, they also adhere to it because they think it will last forever. That political freedom may compromise in its excesses the tranquility, the property, the lives of individuals, is obvious to the narrowest and most unthinking mind. But, on the contrary, none but the attentive and the clear-sighted men perceive the perils with which equality threatens us, and they commonly avoid pointing them out. They know that the calamities they apprehend are remote, and flatter themselves that they will only fall upon future generations, for which the present generation takes but little thought. The evils which freedom sometimes bring with it are immediate. They are apparent to all and all are more or less affected by them. The evils which extreme equality may produce are slowly disclosed. They creep gradually into the social frame. They are only seen at intervals, 
and at the moment at which they become most violent, habit already causes them to be no longer felt. The advantages which freedom brings are only shown by length of time, and it is always easy to mistake the cause in which they originate. The advantages of equality are instantaneous, and they may be constantly traced from their source. Political liberty bestows exalted pleasures, from time to time, upon a certain number of citizens. Equality, every day, confers a number of small enjoyments on every man. The charms of equality are instantly felt, and are within the reach of all. The noblest hearts are not insensible to them, and the most vulgar souls exult in them. The passion which equality engenders must therefore be at once strong and general. Men cannot enjoy political liberty unpurchased by some sacrifices, and they never obtain it without great exertions. But the pleasures of equality are self-proffered. Each of the petty incidents of life seems to occasion them, and in order to taste them nothing is required but to live. Democratic nations are, at all times, fond of equality, but there are certain epochs at which the passion they entertain for it swells to the height of fury. This occurs at the moment when the old social system, long menaced, completes its own destruction after a last intestine struggle, and when the barriers of rank are at length thrown down. At such times men pounce upon equality as their booty, and they cling to it as some precious treasures which they fear to lose. The passion for equality penetrates on every side into men's hearts, expands there, and fills them entirely. Tell them not by this blind surrender of themselves to an exclusive passion, they risk their dearest interests. They are deaf. Show them not freedom escaping from their grasp whilst they are looking another way. They are blind, or rather, they can discern but one sole object to be desired in the universe. What I have said is applicable to all democratic nations. What I am about to say concerns the French alone. Amongst most modern nations, and especially amongst all those of the continent of Europe, the taste and idea of freedom only began to exist and to extend themselves at the time when social conditions were tending to equality, and as a consequence of that very equality. Absolute kings were the most efficient levelers of ranks amongst their subjects. Amongst these nations equality preceded freedom, Equality was therefore a fact of some standing when freedom was still a novelty. The one had already created customs, opinions, and laws belonging to it, while the other, alone and for the first time, came into actual existence. Thus, the latter was still only an affair of opinion and taste, while the former had already crept into the habits of the people possessed itself of their manners, and given a particular turn to the smallest actions of their lives. Can it be wondered 
that the men of our own time prefer the one to the other. I think that democratic communities have a natural taste for freedom. Left to themselves, they will seek it, cherish it, and view any privation of it with regret. But for equality, their passion is ardent, insatiable, incessant, invincible. They call for equality in freedom, and if they cannot obtain that, they still call for equality in slavery. They will endure poverty, servitude, barbarism, but they will not endure aristocracy. This is true at all times, and especially true in our own. All men and all powers seeking to cope with this irresistible passion will be overthrown and destroyed by it. In our age, freedom cannot be established without it, and despotism itself cannot reign without its support. Chapter 2 Of Individualism in Democratic Countries I have shown how it is, in ages of equity, every man seeks his opinions within himself. I am now about to show how it is that, in the same ages, all his feelings are turned towards himself alone. Individualism Footnote A I adopt the expression of the original, however strange it may seem to the English ear partly because it illustrates the remark on the introduction of general terms into democratic language which was made in a preceding chapter, and partly because I know of no English word exactly equivalent to the expression. The chapter itself defines the meaning attached to it by the author. Translator's Note Returning to text Individualism is a novel expression to which a novel idea has given birth. Our fathers were only acquainted with egotism. Egotism is a passionate and exaggerated love of self, which leads a man to connect everything with his own person, and to prefer himself to everything in the world. Individualism is a mature and calm feeling, which disposes each member of the community to sever himself from the mass of his fellow creatures, and to draw apart with his family and his friends, so that, after he thus forms a little circle of his own, he willingly leaves society at large to itself. Egotism originates in blind instinct. Individualism proceeds from erroneous judgment more than from depraved feeling. It originates as much in the deficiencies of the mind as in the perversity of the heart. Egotism blights the germ of all virtue. Individualism, at first, only saps the virtues of public life, but, in the long run, it attacks and destroys all others, and is at length absorbed in downright egotism. Egotism is a vice as old as the world, which does not belong to one form of society more than to another. Individualism 
is of democratic origin, and it threatens to spread in the same ratio as the equality of conditions. Among aristocratic nations, as families remain for centuries in the same condition, often on the same spot, all generations become, as it were, contemporaneous. A man almost always knows his forefathers and respects them. He thinks he already sees his remote descendants, and he loves them. He willingly imposes duties on himself towards the former and the latter, and he will frequently sacrifice his personal gratifications to those who went before and to those who will come after him. Aristocratic institutions have, moreover, the effect of closely binding every man to several of his fellow citizens. As the classes of an aristocratic people are strongly marked and permanent, each of them is regarded by its own members as sort of a lesser country, more tangible and more cherished than the country at large. As in aristocratic communities all the citizens occupy fixed positions, one above the other, the result is that each of them always sees a man above himself, whose patronage is necessary to him, and below himself another man whose cooperation he may claim. Men living in aristocratic ages are therefore almost always closely attached to something placed out of their own sphere, and they are often disposed to forget themselves. It is true that in those ages the notions of human fellowship is faint, and that men seldom think of sacrificing themselves for mankind. But they often sacrifice themselves for other men. In democratic ages, on the contrary, when the duties of each individual to the race are much more clear, devoted service to any one man becomes more rare. The bond of human affection is extended, but it is relaxed. Amongst democratic nations, new families are constantly springing up, others are constantly falling away, and all that remains change their condition. The woof of time is every instant broken, and the track of generations effaced. Those who went before are soon forgotten. Of those who will come after, no one has any idea. The interest of man is confined to those in close propinquity to himself. As each class approximates to other classes, and intermingles with them, its members become indifferent, and as strangers to one another. Aristocracy had made a chain of all the members of the community, from the peasant to the king. Democracy breaks that chain, and severs every link of it. As social conditions become more equal, the number of persons increase who, although they are neither rich enough nor powerful enough to exercise any great influence over their fellow creatures, have nevertheless acquired or retained sufficient education and fortune to satisfy their own wants. They owe nothing to any man. They expect nothing from any man. They acquire the habits of always considering themselves as standing alone, and they are apt to imagine that their whole destiny is in their own hands. Thus, not only does democracy make every man forget his ancestors, but it hides his descendants, and separates his contemporaries from him. It throws him back forever upon himself alone, 
and threatens in the end to confine him entirely within the solitude of his own heart. End of Part 12 Section 2 Chapters 1 and 2 Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville Read by Ralph Volpe